Okay, well, today I have no guest, and instead I'm just going to do a tribute episode to the late Taylor Hawkins, who died over the weekend, tragically. He's a drummer of Foo Fighters and also involved with a lot of other musical projects. And why I'm doing this? Uh, well, my newsfeed was completely flooded with posts about Taylor Hawkins on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that. And uh, I just thought the world did not need another one of those. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll do a podcast tribute thinking that was an original idea. Now I see a ton of those as well. Uh, but we're gonna, here we go. We're going to do it anyways. I'm going to talk about the life and career of Taylor Hawkins, his tragic death, and my thoughts and opinions on the whole thing. Here we go. Okay, so Oliver Taylor Hawkins, I guess that's his full name. He was born in Fort Texas on February 17th, 1972. And then his family moved to Laguna Beach, California. That's where he grew up. And he graduated from Laguna Beach High School, which sounds pretty awesome. And that was in 1990. And he got into music and he was a big fan of Van Halen. For one, I know uh, he actually had a relationship with Alex Van Halen later. Uh, but also a lot of the 80s stuff, Stuart Copeland from The Police, uh, Terry Bozio, Bozio from Missing Persons, Neil Peart from Rush, Roger Taylor from Duran Duran, Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction, Matt Cameron from Soundgarden. I mean, a lot of the 80s stuff, U2 and Phil Collins. And uh, he got really into music and he, he thought he'd move out of Orange County. And I think he moved to Venice Beach and he hated it. He was he said he was looking for the next Jane's Addiction and he uh, then he eventually he played in some uh, Orange County, I think, bass band, Sylvia. Sylvia was the band. Uh, at some point, he got in trouble with the law and he got a DUI and he had to move back in with his parents. Uh, and then he ended up working at this mom and pop music store called the Music House. And he said that was kind of a turning point for him because one of his coworkers knew the guitar player for Sass Jordan. And so in 1994, he became the drummer for uh, Sass Jordan, who was a Canadian artist. And this was like a major label uh, person, he toured with all sorts of big bands. He auditioned for the band. He had to learn the songs. He got paid 400 bucks a week on the road. And uh, the guitarist was Stevie Salas, I believe. And he says that this guitarist like really pushed him. And it made him practice and it made him realize that he had to actually like work at this if he wanted to be a professional musician. I think he was, you know, obviously really gifted drummer. And I think a lot of stuff came easy to him. Like in high school, he said he was the best drummer in his high school. But then when you're going to go up to the next, you know, next league, you actually have to, you may have talent, but you got to work hard too. Right. So he kind of realized that. And they played, the band played a bunch of uh, big tours and festivals and opened up for all sorts of big names. And one of the people they opened up for was Steve Perry. And I didn't know this, but I heard him talking. He said Steve Perry was a drummer and he loved Taylor's drumming. And uh, that's pretty cool. And I think Steve Perry's manager knew Alanis Morissette. And she had come to one of the last uh, gigs that he played with that uh, artist, Sass Jordan. And months later, he got a call and he tried out for Alanis Morissette's band and he beat out 60, 60 other drummers, which is crazy to me. I mean, you have to be pretty good. Think about that. I mean, beating out 60 other people for a job. I don't think I've ever beaten out 60 people for a job. That, that's pretty insane. Uh, but he had heard demos. Uh, I think it was either the, the must've been the demos of Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill and he, the big songs, you know, like you ought to know and 
hand in my pocket and he knew they were good. Right. So he takes that gig, he gets the gig and you know, he's her drummer for a few years and he's in the music videos and such. And, uh, I think, I think now I'm confused because I heard him say that he played the MTV awards and he was really excited about that. And I thought he said that was where he met Dave Grohl the first time. But then I heard another thing where he said he met him at a radio acoustic show, but either way he met Dave Grohl and uh, it was interesting that he pointed out Alanis Morissette told him one of these days you're going to join the Foo Fighters. And he was like, no, no, you know, but eventually, obviously, that is what happened. And, uh, you know, the Foo Fighters were working with another drummer, William Goldsmith, who's from uh, Seattle band Sunny Day Real Estate, and it wasn't working out. And uh, so Grohl called Hawkins, who at this point was an acquaintance. And he was asking for recommendations, thinking, oh, he's not going to leave working with Alanis Morissette. Because at the time, remember Alanis Morissette, I mean, that Jagged Little Pill album was gigantic. But to Grohl's surprise, Hawkins actually volunteered to join the band himself, explaining that he wanted to be the drummer in a rock band rather than for a solo act. So he joined the Foo Fighters in 1997, and the rest is history. I mean, he stayed with them for the next 25 years, I guess it would be. And, uh, you know, they, he played on all the albums, he toured with them and he was obviously a great, great drummer. And, uh, he's funny. He told a story. He met Axl Rose one time and Axl Rose asked Taylor, what's it like being the drummer for the greatest rock drummer of the nineties, you know, having Dave Grohl as your boss. And, uh, I mean, that definitely makes you think because, you really have to work. And I think that's what the problem was with the other drummer is that, you know, he just couldn't play up to Grohl's standards and he was doing like multiple, I think they said he was doing like 96 takes of a song and he just couldn't get it. So, I mean, this is, again, it goes back to Taylor having that talent, but also having to really work. And I'm sure Grohl put him to the test. And, um, I mean, Dave Grohl just, he had such a loyalty to Taylor Hawkins. I, I heard him say in an interview on Howard Stern that, uh, he, he would never kick Taylor Hawkins out of the band. He would give Howard Stern $10,000 if he ever threw him out. And he kept his word. He never did throw him out. And uh, besides the Foo Fighters, if people don't know this, Taylor Hawkins was involved with a bunch of like side projects and super groups and things. Uh, he had his own Taylor Hawkins and the Coattail Riders that released a few CDs where he sang. And then I think this, this was just recently, NHC was a super group with Jane's Addictions members, Dave Navarro and Chris Cheney that he was a member of. And, uh, and that was what Taylor said was the highlight of his life was getting to meet all of his heroes and getting to play with them. Uh, Dave Navarro, he was a huge Jane's addiction fan, but also I heard him say that he got to meet Robert Plant and Jimmy page, the guys from queen Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, uh, Stuart Copeland, who I mentioned earlier. I mean, so that's just, and I, I think I totally understand that in a way because even just getting to do these podcasts and meeting some of my heroes. I mean, it, it's really surreal in a way to, to see these guys that you think are un, untouchable and actually have some sort of interaction. I mean, that's another level to play music with these guys too. Um, so that's more than just meeting them and having a conversation. I mean, he's actually getting to do his craft with the people that inspired him to do his craft. So pretty amazing stuff. And, uh, I mean, everyone's just had so many nice things to say about, uh, about him too. Like, I just think that reading those Facebook posts and Twitter posts from everybody, people that knew him and then people that were just fans, but, uh, you know, they said that he was very genuine. Like what you see is what you get. You know, he was 
just a happy go lucky down to earth guy. And, uh, you know, I heard him joke that he was kind of like white trash. Like, uh, you know, he still had the, the, the old iPhone that had the button on it. He drove like a 2005 Subaru. I, I think, I don't know if he ever upgraded that. Um, you know, so it's like, he's seeing the videos of it, of him doing interviews and stuff. He just seems like such a fun guy. Seeing him on stage, it was sometimes he, they would let him come up and sing a song on the Foo Fighters. And he just had this infectious energy. And you hear people talk about that as well. Um, it's, it's hard to uh, imagine somebody like that having low points, but unfortunately he did have some low points. He, he, I heard him, I heard this, I think it was a secondhand interview say that, you know, he had always been insecure and his thought was like, if he became a rock star, then everything was going to be okay. And the scary moment for him was realizing that after he made it in the music business and he had a million dollars in the bank and he was able to take these, you know, exotic vacations and he had this like private studio that he had built and all, he had everything that he wanted and he still felt exactly the same way he did when he was like searching for that feeling of, you know, curing that sadness or emptiness or whatever it may be. Um, so I think he, he said, talked about how had to kind of step back that fame and success. It was nothing more than freedom. It, it did allow him some freedom, but you know, it wasn't the ultimate happiness to everything. It wasn't the secret to happiness. So he still had, you know, he still had to answer to his wife and help with the kids and work and, and earn money and pay the bills. So I think that was a realization to him. He was been married to his wife since 2005 and they had three kids together. And, uh, so, yeah, I mean, he had quite a career, unfortunately, um, you know, there was a dark side. Like I said, there was low points. I think one of the lowest before his death in 2001, August, uh, Hawkins had OD'd on heroin and it left him in a coma for two weeks. And, uh, he said in his, in response, he said, I was partying a lot. I wasn't a junkie per se, but I was partying. Uh, there was a year was where I was partying, just got a little too heavy and, you know, thank God on some level, you know, somebody gave him the wrong line or something, the wrong thing that happened one night. And he woke up going, what the fuck happened? And he said that was a changing point for him. And, um, and they interviewed Dave Grohl about it in the guardian. And Dave Grohl said, I've seen so many people just lose it all with drugs and die. And of course, Dave Grohl freaked out. And thankfully Hawkins survived that. And, um, but when he was in that coma for two weeks, uh, Dave Grohl remained by his bedside and, you know, I mean, obviously that guy's grohl has been through hell with having to deal with this kind of thing with Cobain, his bandmate. And he said that the prospect of losing Hawkins nearly made Grohl quit music altogether, which is crazy. Um, I did not know that stuff. And then, um, so, you know, you think at that point he's OD'd on heroin in a coma, like he's never going to touch that shit again. It's right. It's he's, that's the wake up call that you need. Unfortunately, March 25th, 2022 of this year, emergency services were called to the Casa Medina hotel in Bogota, Colombia, where Hawkins was suffering from chest pains in his hotel room. Health personnel arrived and found Hawkins unresponsive. They performed CPR, but he was declared dead at the scene. Uh, Originally, no cause of death was given. However, the following day, uh, the authorities announced that a preliminary urine toxicology test indicated that Hawkins had 10 substances in his system at the time of his death, including opiates, benzos, antidepressants, and uh, THC. 
So, yeah, I mean, obviously a massive tragedy and, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's makes you think what the hell, why, why would he do this kind of thing? But his legacy, I mean, he's going to leave such a legacy on the world. I mean, think how many people want to be drummers or became drummers because of Taylor. Um, how many people got into rock music because of Taylor and the Foo Fighters and them seeing and going, wow, this guy is freaking amazing. I love rock music. This is not the same as EDM or uh, rap. You know, this is, I'm a fan of rock music now because of Taylor. So my thoughts on this whole thing, it's tragic. Obviously everyone's posting about how tragic this is. It's tragic, tragic because it shouldn't happen. The guy was 50 years old. If he's not doing drugs, he's still alive right now. So why is he doing drugs at age 50? Um, I think that he must have felt like there was something missing. Again, it goes back to that. You know, he was he thought being a professional musician, a rock star, whatever you want to call it, would fill that void. And it didn't. He still had that void there. And um, so I think that's probably why he had the drugs. I mean, antidepressants, that's typically something that's prescribed for depression, which is it's crazy to think for, you know, average guys, like we look, you know, imagine how many drummers look at him and go, he's got it all. He's in the Foo Fighters. He's one of the biggest band of the, of the world. He's one of the greatest drummers. Like what's not to be happy about. But from doing these podcast interviews, I can tell you that, uh, people with varying levels of success from being in the rock and roll hall of fame to, uh, you know, indie bands, everybody's got, problems. Everybody's got issues. There's it's never, I don't think it's not like you ever just cross the end zone and spike the ball and, you know, like scoring a touchdown and then you've made it and life is great. And now everything is great from here on out. Like it's like he said, I mean, he still had to answer to his wife. He still had to, you know, help with the kids and he still had to pay the bills and, you know, he still had to go through, I'm sure he still had typical things of getting older and in your forties and 50 and health issues and, and dealing with shit and uh, just average problems that all people have. I mean, just cause you have a little bit of money or a little bit of fame or a little success doesn't mean those problems go away. And um, I think every human struggles at times. And uh, so what can we do? Well, I mean, at the very least, maybe we can, you know, check in on each other and check in on people and, you know, whether it's a friend or a family member, uh, there's got to be somebody that you're probably concerned about and maybe you haven't checked in. So maybe, you know, listen to your instincts and, and, and your intuition, whatever you want to call it. Maybe there's somebody out there that could use a friend and it may not have anything to do with drug or alcohol problem. Um, but, you know, check out on that person and uh, maybe they're dealing with other stuff. You know, reaching out to somebody else can go sometimes go a long way. I, I, I'm sure there was people that were concerned about Taylor and and uh, maybe they did reach out and maybe he told them to fuck off. I don't know. Uh, but just as importantly as trying to help other people, I mean, we need to take care of ourselves, right? So maybe the person you're worried about is you. And in which case, uh, you know, maybe you want to reach out to friends and family and uh, ask for help. Um, or maybe you need to take it to another level and, uh, you know, you need to go get mental health or drug and alcohol treatment. Uh, but ultimately, you know, nobody is probably coming to save you. You're going to have to save yourself. So if you're struggling with something, whether it be a drug and alcohol issue or mental health issues or financial issue, um, eventually it's going to have to be you that makes that decision to change. And that's the same with Taylor. Like, 
I mean, ultimately he was a 50, he's a 50 year old grown man. I mean, it was his decision if he was struggling with something, whether he wanted to get help. And maybe again, I don't know the whole backstory. Maybe he was getting help and, and maybe that wasn't enough. And sometimes these things you can try and try and try. It's just a problem that you can't solve sadly. And I, I wish that there was something that people could have done. I don't know what that would have been, but, um, all we can do at this point is, uh, try to help other people, um, that, you know, maybe suffering from similar pain. And, and again, maybe the pain manifests with drug and alcohol, maybe it manifests in other ways, but, uh, we're all in this world together. So I think we need to help each other out for what it's worth. Maybe that sounds cheesy. I used to be a counselor. I don't know. Maybe that's just the counselor in me. Um, but what I do want to do is I want to donate all the proceeds from the views of this video, if there is any, um, to a charity for mental health or substance abuse. And I tried to Google some, and I'm just not sure which one is going to be the best one, but let me know if you have a good one, something that fits this, this, uh, issue. Um, I saw some that like music cares does some things for working musicians, but I think they only work with working musicians. And uh, I think I'd so like something a little more broader. So, um, I will donate a 100% of all the proceeds from the views of this video. It, again, if there is any, um, at the end of the year, I will throw that to a charity. I'll probably throw some money to that charity regardless. Um, just cause I, I feel like that's the right thing to do. I don't, I don't have a lot to, to give, but I have something. And if we all pitch in and, you know, we can hopefully make a difference and, um, that's all we can really do. And so I always try to think like, what can we do when something like this happens? Because you can't go back in time. So how do you move forward? And uh, I think part of it is remembering the person, which I, I tried to talk about his career and all the good things, and then trying to hopefully prevent something like this from happening in the future. So if there's something, again, something that you think you can do to help people that are suffering from, from, from pain in the world, whether it's, again, drug and alcohol or mental health or, uh, you know, there's all sorts of problems that people are suffering from. If you can help somebody, that's awesome. That's kind of always been the goal with my show. Ultimately is I want to make a big show and I want it to, to help the world. I want it to inspire people and make people think about what they can do. And, um, that's all I got. So thanks for listening. Uh, have a great rest of your day and remember shoot for the moon.